You are listening to the Hematology Podcast by Sanofi. One drop of blood, two sheets of glass, 40 times objective. Hematological diagnostics demands a keen eye and a sound reasoning. At the same time, artificial intelligence is entering the field in a big way. We ask, are the days of GEMSA coloring past us? What will machines be able to do for us? And is there a new role for humans in hematological diagnostics? This is the Hematology Podcast, and I am Mats Merup. So today we're talking about hematological diagnostics, a field of rapid development, where we've traditionally used blood and bone marrow smears, combined with different kinds of coloring analyzed by a doctor. More advanced technical solutions are entering the field. One of the most significant in which is probably the use of artificial intelligence. With me today, I have Birgitta Sander, pathologist, researcher, and professor at the Karolinska Institute. Hello, Birgitta. Hey, hello. I'm Birgitta Sander, and I'm so happy to be here to see if we can find new solutions for my work. And we also have Morten Goodwin, researcher and professor in artificial intelligence at the University of Agder. Hello, Morten. Hello. Looking forward to talking about artificial intelligence and hematology. You are a real expert in this field. So, and I'm not. So I would be very happy if you could sort of introduce us to what is really artificial intelligence. Sure, I'll, of course, do that. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, uh, it is a very broad concept, but often we're really talking about a subset of artificial intelligence called machine learning. And machine learning is the most prominent part of artificial intelligence, and it is software, computer programs, that are trained. Uh, Often we call these programs software uh, for algorithms, and in contrast to standard software, we don't explicitly write everything we need uh, for the program to do. So instead, we, for example, give it a thousand examples of cancer cells, pictures of cancer cells, thousand examples of non-cancer cells, and then we ask the algorithm to learn what is the difference between those two. So we have a phase where we train the algorithm, so it's learning, The machines are learning. That's what they call machine learning. And after this kind of blind phase of training, we test it and we check that it is actually has actually learned what is the real difference between the two data types it's supposed to differ. So most of what is artificial intelligence today falls into the category of machine learning. And that is software that is trained up very often from data. Could I ask you, you here give the example of, you know, two categories like cancer cells and normal cells. Mm-hmm. But if you would like a machine to learn uh, what we look at, for instance, in bone marrow smears, we categorize cells in maybe 15 or 20 different categories, which should be, you know, present in, an, in a kind of fixed proportion in the bone marrow smears. Can the machine do that too? Well, in theory, absolutely. Uh, so you can don't need two categories, like cancer, non-cancer. You can have many. And it all depends on the data you put in. But then you have to label all that information. So if you are looking for 15 types 
of uh, uh, 15 types, then you need data accordingly. Where some clinical expert says, this is the type of bone marrow I'm looking for now, this is the type of cell I'm looking for now, this is the type of uh, maturity I'm looking for now. So in principle, there is no reason why you cannot have uh, many categories. Uh, and uh, and it learns uh, well to separate those categories as long as it, as it is separable. It, you can really see the difference. A challenge is often that when you add these type of uh, number of categories, you need more data to separate so that you actually find the difference between them. So if you only want to separate two categories, cancer and non-cancer, let's say. Uh, you need uh, not that much data, but if you need to find the advanced patterns, which you are talking about now, you typically need a lot more. So it's absolutely possible, but in practice, it becomes a bit more difficult to do that. Mm. So, you know, it's the enumeration of cells that we are interested in, but then we're also looking at the quality of the cells. For instance, if a mature granulocyte, which is the most mature uh, cell of the myeloid lineage there, if, if a mature granulocyte has a normal cytoplasm or that the cytoplasm lacks granularity or that the nucleus has a very clumsy and, you know, mm-hmm. abnormal shape. So can that can the machine also recognize this kind of subtle and um, for us rather subjective patterns? Right. So the, so the sub- subjectivity is a bit uh, difficult because it often requires a lot of knowledge to understand what is normal and what is abnormal. Uh, But again, there's no reason why that cannot happen. Uh, You can see these type of categories. But what is really trending is to look at uh, these type of uh, machine learning methods as uh, detecting abnormalities, meaning that you you instead of defining all the categories that you're mentioning now, saying, here I have a lot of Normal cells, these are just typically non-cancerous, has nothing to do with cancer at all. And then you have uh, something that is not normal. And then we want a clinician or an expert to look further into. And that uh, that is um, solving a lot of the problem because you, then you just need to say, here is a lot of normality, here is a lot of abnormality. And then whenever something falls outside of the norm, you can maybe put up a flag and say, this is a decision support for a clinician to investigate further. Um, and that is very trendy in the research now. Not necessarily defining everything because it's very tedious, <laughs> but rather saying we have the standard and the non-standard way of looking at cells, as we're talking about now. This is very interesting. Bigita, could you, just to continue this discussion, say a little bit what you see where we are in pathology today and are we already using artificial intelligence in any area? And yeah, let's start with that. I think that it's coming used in hematopathology, but more in the research context. So that is, for instance, if you have to evaluate the proliferation in a large number of cells, for instance, if you need to uh, define in a multiple myeloma how many of the plasma cells are proliferating, you can make a double staining for CD138 and then you can also stain for the proliferation marker KI67 or MIB1 and then you can ask a machine to count how many of the CD138 positive plasma cells are also positive for the marker for proliferation. So that I know is used in certain parts of uh, the world. Um, uh, 
other areas that are very interesting is to try to define um, in lymphoma the cases that have, you know, in an aggressive lymphoma, the cases that have an unusual aggressive morphology so that you would like to complement your analysis for translocations. And, and, you know, you would like to see whether you have a translocation of MYC and BCL2 and perhaps of BCL6 in these cells. And what we do now is that we have kind of a routine. We decide that this should be done on perhaps all cases, which is very expensive and tedious because someone has to look in the fluorescent microscope. It also costs a lot. But there are projects where where people are trying to investigate whether an image analysis or an artificial intelligence could define characteristics of these cells, which should make us even more, you know, uh, suspicious and and, uh, even could replace the need of translocation. Because we cannot do that really reproducibly with the human eye, but maybe a machine could do that. Well, and and as I see it, this is kind of the strength of the algorithms because they can do all these tedious, long-term tasks and and say that here are let's say five percent of what you should really investigate by a human, and then uh, and that can run all night, no problem, right? It doesn't care about the working hours or all of those things that is important. <laughs> yeah. So I would, you know, in a dream situation. You would actually, you, we get, you know, the samples during one day and then they are fixed and then they are, you know, stained. And, and then perhaps we could let them all go through a machine. And when we come back in the morning, you know, they have flagged certain samples uh, and then we can concentrate on those. That would be Absolutely. super because there is also a, sh- a shortage of experienced hematopathologists. All right. So this is something that would be very useful, actually. And part of this is to understand that the machine not only says uh, a category, but it can also say how certain it is. I can say that I'm 99% certain that this is a malignant example. And I'm, let's say, only 20% certain of this one. And then maybe you can prioritize based on this. Because then they can say that here are like these uh, small percentage, which I'm very uncertain about, but this needs to be quality assured. And part of it is, of course, that when you do, if that is in procedure, put correctly, whenever um, a clinician corrects the algorithm, says, here you've made a mistake, uh, or here I, you, you should have done something differently, it will be fed back, or it at least should be fed back, so that it continuously to improve all the time. So that is uh, kind of learning uh, all the time, it's always improving. That's kind of the idea of these algorithms. Every time you give it a new uh, guide, it will then improve and improve. So not only will it probably help in such a system, but it can continuously improve, at least if it's developed in this this type of way. Okay, but then the weak link here is that the person that interacts with the system should be the most experienced ones. Because otherwise you will train the machine in the wrong direction. Oh, absolutely. So you you can uh, of course risk uh, uh, if you say something wrong that it can be learned in a wrong way. Mm-hmm. But you can also risk that uh, I don't know much about the cl- clinical life, but uh, 
I would expect that a system that works, let's say, 95% of the time, uh, it is very easy to trust it also when it doesn't work. <laughs> so you have to have this kind of subjectivity in there to say that, ah, I, you may say that this is green, uh, but I think maybe it, I should investigate a little bit further because something in my background tells me that uh, it's not correct. So uh, absolutely, we're... Kind of, the machines are kind of slaves to the input it's given. And if it's given wrong input by somebody who's not that experienced, let's say, then it can learn bad, badly. Uh, and also it can give too much trust to those that are may not, uh, or there needs to be a system in place that fits this mm. well. Maybe hematology is a little bit special. I would like to ask you, Birgitta, because, I mean, when it comes to picking out a blast, maybe that's rather easy for a machine. But we also have this mix of cells. When you look at a bone marrow, I guess you have to look also the mix of normal cells. So in that respect, maybe hematology is a little bit special. Yeah, it is the, you know, you have to make a, a you know, quantitative assessment so that, for instance, you have a right proportion between myelopoiesis and erythropoiesis, for instance. But you also have to make the, the qualitative investigation of all the cells. And then we also have another problem that I've thought of. When, when you, you describe this um, uh, artificial intelligence, Morten, and that is that we look through the whole sample, you know, which mm -hmm. is... a Uh, on these glass slides, you know, there are areas that are really not perfectly stained or where the cells have not been layered out in a perfect way. But we as humans, we screen over that. Mm. And we can very easily learn to distinguish what, what is an artifact in here. And then we concentrate the counting on the best area. Mm -hmm. But for a machine, you know, it also needs them kind of to screen through and go to the best area and find that perhaps, you know, we have a small focus in a, in a thick area where we actually have a metastasis of prostate cancer or something, you know. Mm. So there are so many qualities in here that the human brain is kind of perfect of sorting out. Mm. But where I believe that a machine is going to be more square-minded, so to say. Yeah. I think you've uh, been pointing correctly because it is kind of, uh, it does uh, it correctly, but in a very, uh, I would say, very meticulous way. So that means that it, it follows the rules exactly. <laughs> And it has no way of understanding that it's now... Uh, something is colored wrong, for example, if that's not in the training data at all, or something is just a bit different than what is what is really there. So it has a tendency to find uh, just statistical correlations, which are not really causalities at all. So if you just look at images, maybe there's not that many statistical issues that could be there. Maybe there is. But if you add other type of data, uh, genetics data, Uh, health records that absolutely could be, I would say. And and that is, uh, it's common to think that you just add more data and it becomes better. That That is not really the case because you, uh, we have a saying that's, that is the curse of dimensionality. And that means that when you add more data, you need to find, uh, you find correlations that are not necessarily real causalities, but are really there in the data anyway. 
And for the machine to understand the difference between those correlations and real causes, it has no understanding of that at all. And and that is at least where a, a medical human doctor is needed in all future, as I can see it. Because that type of understanding of the world, of the patient, of the field, is not something a machine learning algorithm really can do. No, but it can do the boring job for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. <laughs> and it and and it can do it very well and help yeah. and be it support. So you can think of it maybe as a second microscope. Here yeah. you have a microscope that you look at, and here you have a other device, another tool that can help and support uh, for the clinician and of course for the patient. That is what it needs to do. Yeah, and, and you know what I also think is that perhaps the machine could, you know, kind of discriminate something that we cannot really pinpoint with our brain, you know. Like Matt said, you know, the blast cell, mm-hmm. okay, that they, they can look different. Mm-hmm. But then we have the, the, you know, the kind of big fight sometimes between hematopathologists. The difference between a blast cell and a pro-monocyte and a more mature monocyte, mm-hmm. you know. This is, a, a, you know, these are just three types of cells but we often disagree on how to classify this oh, right. in, in three different baskets, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I think that the, perhaps, you know, a, a machine could uh, find small differences that, you know, kind of reveal for us also, what should we look at? So the, the machine has a kind of different discrimination than our human brain, I hope. Yes, I would absolutely say uh, you're you're pointing to something that is machine learning is very good at actually seeing the difference and uh, to some extent uh, explaining this is the real difference between this part or this type of cell and this type of cell or this type of maturity, this type of maturity. So it, it, it is often said that these machine learning algorithms are like black boxes. They're very seldom like that because you can you can look in detail, follow most of what's happening and say that when I look at the cell type of maturity, this is the kind of structure that is relevant. Sometimes it's a bit complex to find it, but you can get a kind of interpretability of what is really happening mm. in there. Mm. and. In my simple mind, that would be useful in your field to say this is the real difference between this type of cell yeah. and this type of cell and yeah. this type of cell. Yeah. I would say. And it can drive knowledge, I think, you know, if you can pinpoint it like that, because then you can ask, okay, but what's behind this then? Right. And it might be knowledge that we humans don't have, but it's really there in the data. <laughs> there is yeah. something here that's different that we need to uh, explore and find. And we see an example of machine learning finding uh, knowledge in data from other fields many times. And it is we didn't know that it was a difference, but there really is. Kind of looking at the backside of the eye, you can see the difference between gender, for example. That is an example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there should be something in the in this type of hematology cells, so mm. I would expect. Well, can I ask Mats a question now? I'm just supposed to ask questions, but you may try. <laughs> I may. If you got a report now on the bone marrow from an AI, would you trust it? Mm. Would you trust it the way you, you trust the clinical chemistry, you know, peripheral blood values? Uh, you can get a, an automated differential count of peripheral blood where all the cells are mature, but would you trust that also in the bone marrow? 
I mean, this is a good question. And for sure, as a clinician, I am so dependent on you as a pathologist to, I mean, I don't want a differential count. I want an interpretation. Mm. So I need you, be it still. I have to have a little bit more than just a list of what cells that are seen. Unless it's blasts. I mean, when it comes to blasts, I guess it's easy. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. And I mean, that, that also brings us to another point, that diagnosis is a discussion of, or sort of a compi- compilation of different type of data, isn't it? Yes. Your part with the pathology is one, my part as a clinician is one, we have the genetic part, we have lab, uh, and it's all these that give us a diagnosis. Yeah. And we have the and we have the history of the patient. Yes, mm-hmm. which is the clinical part. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's we really stand on many legs when we make a diagnosis. Mm. No one can really do it alone, you know. Can AI help us further here than just looking at the cells, Morten? I think it can give you another leg, I would say. Uh, it's just one of more legs you can trust. And in a way, another interpretation, another kind of counting that can support either one of you, I would say. But it, it is, I would say it's uh, nobody in the right mind thinks that it will give a diagnosis out of the box. And we don't want that because we want it to be a tool that supports the system that it exists today because there is so much knowledge, there is so much experience, there is so much that you know <laughs> that it's very, very tough to teach a machine learning algorithm and we don't want it. We want the tool to help support and that is what it's good at. The boring but the important part. And that I think it is attractive to you to get rid of these boring <laughs> cell countings. Well, uh, yes and no. You know, it would, you know, it would be helpful probably because nowadays we count, we, I mean, it's in the instructions for everyone that we should count at least 500 cells in the mm-hmm. bone marrow smears. And uh, for me, it would be better if one could count 2,500 cells, mm-hmm. for instance. Yep. Because, you know, some cells like mast cells and basophils are rare. And if we want to have a real proportion of those, you know, uh, 500 cells in this area or 500 cells in that area of the bone marrow smear might give a different percentage. So in principle, we would like to have an even larger number of cells evaluated than what we do in our normal diagnostic practice. And that a machine could do, I think. I hope. I would say absolutely. And it will give you an additional support because it becomes even stronger. And then I would say that one thing machine learning is very good at is to individualize, to see the difference between patients in this case. So I would, not talking too much into your field, but I would expect there is some difference. Sometimes it's important to look at this type of cell, sometimes it's important to look at this type of cell because of the history of the patient or something like that. And... um, Machine learning is very, very good at saying that uh, this I individualized for that reason, for some historical reason, or maybe it's been a smoker before, or I don't know, something like that. And then for this reason, we don't, uh, it's not so important. So this type of individual thinking is machine learning very, very good at. So maybe this could also help in the daily life of your yeah. world, Birgitta. Yeah. So what would you say in time frame when... Will this enter the clinical routine? What is your estimation, both of you? And will it? Well, I mean, if I start, you know, we use some kind of 
techniques already. We use, for instance, the flow cytometry very much, mm-hmm. which gives us information on different types of cells and their surface markers and their nuclear markers. And that, you know, started some time in the 80s or early 90s, and we cannot now, 30 years later or 40 years later, survive without the flow cytometry analysis. And the same with immunohistochemistry that also was developed at that time, you know. So um, I think it will take time, but I definitely think it will come. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's hard for me to say exactly when, but I see the great potential here that the answer is, of course, very soon. <laughs> Because there's so much added value. Uh, and when there's so much added value, why why wouldn't you encompass, why wouldn't you embrace it? So I would at least hope that it happens uh, quickly because it is to the best for everyone. So thank you, Morten and, and Begitta, for this very interesting discussion. Is there something finally you want to add? I think we covered many areas. Yeah, and I'm, you know, for me, this was also very interesting, you know, to hear what Morten says. And I think that it's... Uh, We will come there, but it it requires some devoted uh, work, really, uh, before we can uh, accomplish this. For simple things like double stainings and evaluating how many cells are proliferating, there we are practically already kind of now. But, you know, for these complicated things that uh, we do with our brains almost without thinking the evaluation, you know, to, to get that to work with artificial intelligence, it requires a devoted uh, work before we have it in our hands. Fascinating futures, but still for the coming years, we still have some need for us humans. Thank you so much for joining me today to have this discussion and looking forward to see more AI in the clinical work. In the next episode of the Hematology Podcast, we'll speak to an expert in myeloma about minimal residual disease. He'll tell us about the latest advances in measuring the smallest levels of cancer cells, what we can use MRD testing for, and what the future may bring. Thank you for listening to the Hematology Podcast by Sanofi. 